We are going to do what we tend to do every Sunday, which is to look into God's Word. Um, we've been in our Easter series looking in the book of Luke at sort of the, the lead up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And for the next few weeks, we're just going to continue on through Luke, uh, Luke 24. We're going to look at some of the stories that Luke uh, recounts to us of uh, the life of the disciples post-resurrection, when Jesus comes to reveal himself to them and talk and interact with them. And then after that, uh, we're going to jump all the way to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, uh, also in the book of Luke. So we're going to be kind of in Luke until uh, the summer months, just uh, so as you know. Uh, Today, we're going to be in Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. And uh, just before we look into it, I think I'm going to pray and ask God's blessing on our time uh, together. So won't you uh, join me, please? Uh, Lord, thank you uh, for the many good things that we see you doing. Uh, thank you, Lord, for uh, the, the many people who came to join us last week. Uh, Lord, we continue to pray for our community, our neighborhood, that more and more people would uh, come to know the hope of Jesus. Uh, we pray for our time now, Lord. We thank you that we can gather together. We can look into your word. Uh, God, we pray that this would be a profitable time for us, Uh, Lord, that we would uh, come to understand you more, come to understand ourselves more, and Lord, that in that we would be encouraged, Uh, Lord, we would be blessed, and I just pray, Lord, that this would be uh, a time where you you speak to us and we hear you clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, uh, Luke 24, this is the uh, Road to Emmaus account. If you know the story, there's a couple of disciples uh, and Jesus, they're walking away from Jerusalem. Uh, they're not feeling great, and G- Jesus comes to meet with them. Um, just before we, we read the text, though, I think it's good to understand who are these disciples. Uh, the text makes clear the name of one of them. Uh, I'm going to read to you, just the verse will be up there. Uh, verse 18 says, Then one of them, one of the disciples named Cleopas, answered him. So we know at least one of their names, and this gives us a bit of a clue as to who they are. Because elsewhere in the Gospels, we have another guy named Clopas. Very similar. Here's the, here's the verse from John 19. Uh, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And so there, uh, the one letter difference, most biblical scholars say, hey, this is probably the same guy, which, which makes sense then. He was leaving Jerusalem. Uh, he had been there. He'd been a follower of Jesus. But this also tells us then who is the person walking with him. Because you saw there in John that uh, Clopas or Cleopas is married to Mary, who is the sister of Jesus' mother, Mary. Why so many Marys? I don't know. It's just the way it is. It's one of those names. Um, uh, I did some research this week. George Foreman has five sons. They're all named George. He has a daughter named Georgetta. So sometimes people just like the name and they keep naming their their sons or their daughters the same name. Anyway, uh, more than likely, this is uh, Jesus's uncle Cleopas and Aunt Mary who were his disciples and also related to him, obviously, and they are leaving Jerusalem. And not surprisingly, they are in a, a very uh, deep emotional state. They're in a state of uh, distress and, and really fearing sorrowful and low. And what we see here is that uh, Jesus uh, brings hope into their life. Um, they weren't just upset because he was their nephew, but because, because he was their hope. And now he's dead. And yet amazingly, graciously, Jesus comes in and connects with them. So we're going to look to the text. We're going to look in three parts and uh, pull a teaching point out of each one. But our first part uh, begins in Luke 24, verse 13. 
That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you, as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So that's the first part. We see the setup. We see that uh, there is a great amount of, of really um, despair. And the teaching point we're going to draw out of this is simply this. Life disappointments often lead to despair. Cleopas and Mary are indicative of the rest of the disciples. Everyone was feeling very, very low since Friday, since the, the crucifixion, because all of their hope was gone, right? We see in the text kind of their, their, their frame of mind. It says very clearly in verse 17, and they stood still looking sad. So obviously they were, you could visibly see that they were upset. But then even in verse 18, their response, uh, I detect a note of sarcasm. Of bitterness, right? Jesus asks them and, and they respond, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? It's, it's like, can't you, can't you tell what's been going on? Everyone's talking about this. It's, it's a sore spot for them. See, they believe very, very strongly that Jesus was the Messiah. They had all of their hopes wrapped up in him. They had followed him faithfully. They had sacrificed for him more than likely, they had had to turn their back on their community, certainly on their, uh, the Jewish religious upbringing that they had. They would have been in a position where they had given up a lot with the expectation that Jesus was the Messiah and that he would bring hope in the future. And now he's gone. He's dead. They had nothing. And so all of the disciples were, were in a state of shock. And I think this is probably a state of mind that we have experienced ourselves. Life brings us disappointments, not just, not just minor disappointments, not just where we are inconvenienced, but, but where we are shaken to our very core. It's not just that they are dealing with an unexpected trial in life. I mean, that's difficult, but they are dealing with a situation where the very source of their hope has failed them or they think has failed them. And so you might know that emotional state. You're caught totally flat-footed, totally off guard. You, you, it's tough to catch your breath. There's a real sense in which you're experiencing shock. You, you keep going back over what led to this moment, and you're trying to figure out what went wrong, and there's no good explanation. In this, in this state, you, you feel desperate. It leads to a, a time of depression. You begin to question the, the hope that you have. You, 
If you know God, you're, you're questioning God. Lord, why is it happening this way? More than likely for us, if you've been in that situation, usually it has to do with people in our lives. People that we are in relationship with. Maybe a close friend. They'd be counted on for years and then something, something goes wrong. There's a falling out. Maybe it's a, it's a relationship, a marriage, where you have literally invested time and energy and hope and commitment. And if that starts to, to break down, that the effects are devastating. Even a close business partnership, one where you, you have both poured in money and time, you've, you've had an agreement and, and one person betrays the other or one person doesn't fulfill what they were supposed to do and, and you're left thinking, how do I go forward? Emotionally, it's not, just, it's not just disappointing. It's really devastating. And you wonder where, where the hope is. You can see for them, there is a state of despair setting in. Because there, if you listen to their words, there are some reasons why they should actually be kind of hopeful still. Right? Look at their words in verse 21. Uh, it says, But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things had happened. Moreover, some women from our company amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels. They said that he was alive. I mean, these are all things that, as disciples of Jesus, they would have heard before. Right? They, at the very least, they should have said, man, I wonder if the things that we heard are actually true. There should have been a glimmer of hope but there's no hope for them. And this is, a, this is a telltale sign of those who are suffering from some level of depression. Where the darkness seems so strong, the clouds seem so dense that there's no light that can shine through. If you've been in that situation or you've known someone in that situation, you know that you can't just, you can't just cheer up someone who is in that state of, of sorrow. I was in a session one time with a, a psychologist who was working with some church planners, uh, kind of doing some training, and uh, he told the story of when he was a young, he was just out of school, he was young and energetic, and they asked him to, uh, to kind of head up a, uh, a support group for those struggling with depression. And he said at the time, he was very excited about this. He was, he was ready for the, the challenge. And so he said he came into the first session on a Monday morning and he kind of bounded into the room and said, okay, I, man, I hear everyone's kind of feeling down, but listen, I had a great weekend. I'm feeling really pumped. I went fishing. Man, I think, I just want to remind you, there's so much to be thankful for in life. And at that moment, a Kleenex box hit him in the front of the head. <laughs> One of the people at the back had just chucked it at him because they didn't want to hear that, right? They didn't see any hope in fishing and all the good things going on in his life. For them, they were, they were depressed. And, and, and there's a reality to that. There's a, a sense of, of hopelessness because of life disappointments, because of the despair that we find ourselves in. And look, there are a lot of different ways that we can help those who are in this state. I mean, we are, not, we are psychological beings. We are relational. We are physical. There, there's all methods of, of help for those who are in a state of sorrow. But what we find here in the words of Jesus, in his approach to these disciples, is firstly that, that he is gracious and compassionate. He draws near to them. But also, the, the focus that he gives for them 
is the word of God. When he wants to help those who are, who are generally sorrowful, we're going to see here in the text that where he points them is to God's word. In fact, we're going to see that it's absolutely essential for those who are in a state of depression to recognize and see the word of God. So here we're going to see what uh, Jesus has to say to them. Uh, the next three verses is this. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. We'll stop there. So the the point we're going to pull out of this next section is this. A right understanding of God's word brings hope. Now I could have said, uh, God's word brings hope. That would have been snappier, right? Easier to remember. But what we see here is that that is not always the case. Just because you know God's word doesn't mean that you are hopeful. What we need is a right understanding of God's word. Uh, Mary and Cleopas, they would have known God's word. As, as faithful Jewish boys and girls growing up, they would have gone into the, our Old Testament, but for them, just the scriptures. They would have memorized the Torah. They would have studied Moses, studied the prophets. They would have known God's word. They would have known the scriptures. They even knew the words of Jesus. Jesus had told them all that was going to happen, all that was going to, you know, they'd traveled with him for years. And yet they didn't have hope. Why not? Well, because they didn't understand it rightly. They had, they had read the scriptures selectively. And Jesus, his first words of help to them are very strongly worded. Kind of surprising, actually. For, for people who are feeling very low, he rebukes them. That's his help. He says, oh, foolish ones. This is in verse 25. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And what he's rebuking them for is not that they didn't know the scriptures, but that they read them selectively. That they embraced the parts that they like and they kind of forgot about the parts they didn't like. So they would have really liked the part about uh, the Messiah as a ruler. This idea of a ruling Messiah, one who was going to come like King David, deal with the Romans, bring help to the people. They would have had verses that are right in the forefront of their mind. Uh, Here's one of them that we looked at on Palm Sunday. This is what the people were were kind of celebrating. Uh, From Zechariah 9, 9, it said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. I mean, that, that they would have embraced. Yeah, that's, that's the kind of Messiah we want. We need someone to come in like a king and to deal with everyone. He is going to be a Messiah who rules. They totally forgot about some of the other scriptures that talk very clearly about the Messiah and say that, that he's going to suffer. Here's uh, from the most famous passage in Isaiah 53, which says this about the Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. See, rather than accepting the the whole of God's truth about who the Messiah is, they emphasized the part that they they thought made more sense. It makes makes more sense that the Messiah is going to come and rule and reign. It doesn't make very much sense that he would come and suffer and die. 
I mean, how is that going to help anyone? Right? They, so when they thought of the Messiah, they had in their mind a view of the ruling Messiah. And then when God enacted his plan, which had always been that the Messiah would come, would suffer, would die, and then rise again, in that gap part, before he rose again, they, they were crushed. They were devastated because their hope of what the scriptures thought was not coming to pass. And Jesus is saying, if you had read it rightly, you would have hope even in this dark time. And we do the same thing to this day. Today, as a church, we oftentimes read the scriptures selectively. Usually when it comes to difficult times in our lives. See, when we hear someone teach, either we read it in scripture or we we hear a sermon that says something like, you know, Christians are going to lead lives of hardship, of suffering. We are going to be called to, to die to ourselves and, and sacrifice. This is the road that all Christians walk. Many of us hear that, but it, it seems fuzzy because it doesn't make sense. I mean, God loves me. So why wouldn't he deal with all the, the bad stuff? He's, he's in control of everything. Of course, he's going to make my life easier. That's what you do when you love someone. And then maybe we hear someone else teach or we come across another passage that talks about how God is going to bless us, how he has plans for us. He's going to prosper us. Many blessings from Jesus. And we think, yeah, yeah, that's, I'm going to remember that verse. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to put it on a post-it note. That's what I want to remember. And we end up skewing the truth of God's word. We don't have a full and right understanding. And so when God does what he says he's going to do, which is to bring trials into our life, we're devastated. We, we wonder, God, what are, you, what are you doing? How could you allow this level of, of pain and, and difficulty into my life? We ask him, why, Lord, why? And, and yet, he's given us some answers. In James, he says very clearly, count it all joy, my brothers and my sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. With a right understanding of the word of God, we are able to engage in, to walk through the circumstances of life, all the circumstances, because we, we see God's plan more fully, more completely. God did love us. And so he did send the Messiah, Jesus, not just to live, but to die in our place and then be raised again. He did it because... Because he loves us. That, that's, that was his love. That was his hope for us. And even now, he continues to love us. And so he brings difficulty into our lives. So that our faith may be tested. So that for those of us who say, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. I want to follow him. We go through difficult times and we lay hold more, more securely to the truth of who he is. It's, it's God's love, but it's also God's plan. With the right understanding of what God's word teaches, there are less times where we find ourselves in great despair because of a misunderstanding of what God has said that he will do. So a right understanding of God's word brings hope. And I want to kind of double down on this point because there's more here that we see in the actions of Jesus about the importance of God's word. For instance, do you notice that Jesus even prioritizes the word of God above a supernatural spiritual experience. Like if there were two disciples 
that were very, very sad because they thought Jesus was dead, what would be the most helpful and encouraging thing that Jesus could do since he's actually alive? Don't you think he could probably say, hey guys, I'm alive. I'm walking right next to you. Don't worry. It's all good. I know you're really sad. You thought I was dead. I'm not dead. I'm here. Look, it's me. Wouldn't that be the best, most impactful thing that he could do? I mean, he's going to do it in a moment, but why, why doesn't he do it right away? Well, what we see is that a spiritual experience, the, the, the mind-blowing reality of seeing Jesus alive is actually not the very best thing that he could give them at that moment. The very best thing he could give them is the hope of God in the word of God. Notice, notice that the priority is not like he's not going to show them, but he wants them to see, look, God's plan, this was always God's plan. And even in this moment of darkness, look to what God's word says. There, there's hope in that. For us, it's the same. That the emphasis is always on the word of God. Not that we shouldn't seek out or, or experience supernatural things. We will. God is a supernatural God. And he will be doing things in our lives that are always supernatural and, and amazing and fantastic. But, but this is the foundation of our faith. Jesus is revealed clearly and we can come back to it again and again. It's not an experience that fades. One other moment, there's a few times where Jesus really emphasizes God's word. Really throughout the Bible we see it. But one story in particular I think hits home because uh, it connects to our text today. And that is when Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. I don't know if you remember the story. It's earlier on in Luke 16. And uh, it's kind of a parable. Jesus is telling the story of these two guys. Uh, The rich man is very rich, obviously. Lazarus is a poor man, a beggar. Uh, Not the same Lazarus as the one who was raised from the dead. It's just one of those names, like Mary, that apparently everyone named their kid Lazarus. So so, uh, rich man and Lazarus, and what happens is that the rich man is is not a kind man, not a generous man. He, He does not care for Lazarus as he should, and they both die. The rich man goes to hell. Uh, Lazarus goes to heaven. And we get even a window into heaven and hell. That's why one of the reasons it's an amazing story. And what we see is that the rich man looks up and he sees uh, Lazarus and Father Abraham. And he says to to Abraham, can you send Lazarus down with some water? I'm in agony. My, my, My tongue is burning. And Abraham's response is, you did not comfort Lazarus in life. And now you are experiencing the, you're reaping what you sowed. You had everything. You had all the comforts in, in life on earth. But you were, you were a hard man. You did not turn to God in repentance, and now you are where your choices have led you, which is in hell. You are suffering for your sins. And so there will be no comfort for you. And besides that, he says, there's a gulf between heaven and hell that we cannot pass. Now, there's lots in there that we could talk about, but here's the, the focus of the point. Look at uh, the rich man's response to Abraham. We're going to put it on the screen. And the rich man said... Then I beg you, Father, to send him, that's Lazarus, uh, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So you see the issue there. Uh, The rich man is saying, look, I I get where I am now. I see it clearly. But my brothers, they're living like I did. They are also unrepentant of sin and they're greedy and and I don't want them to end up here with me. 
And so he thinks, what's the, what's the one thing that would grab their attention? What would really, you know, cause them to repent and to turn from their ways? Of course, if Lazarus, someone they know, they know he's dead. If he shows up to them, then they will believe. They'll have this amazing transformative experience. They will see someone who has risen from the dead and they will speak to them and say, turn from your ways. It'll impact them to such a degree that they will turn and they will start following God. But Abraham says, no, that's not how it works. If they don't read the, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, which means all of the Old Testament scriptures, then they're not going to believe someone who rises from the dead. You might say, really? I mean, aren't there, aren't there amazing spiritual experiences that God does and that have an impact? And the answer is, of course, yes. Yes, this isn't an either-or situation. It's not either we read the word of God or we pursue experiences with him. It's both. But there is a priority, a preeminence of the word. I mean, praise God for the things that he does that are miraculous. I want to make it very clear that we, we serve and love and adore a supernatural God. Who, who does amazing things throughout the world. There are times, there are stories that, that we've heard, that I've talked to people who have experienced seeing Jesus for the first time in their dreams and that they are led to faith in him and, and to seek for a Bible so they might know more about him. There are experiences of people in our congregation. One I was talking to last night, Mike Gare. I don't know if you know Mike and Shelley, part of our congregation, but he was miraculously healed. He was in, uh, years ago uh, in Puerto Vallarta, and he dove into shallow water, I think, and broke his neck. In Puerto Vallarta, they had him in the, in the hospital doing x-rays, and they showed him where he had uh, fragments of, of bone stuck into his vertebrae. And they said, you're going to be a quadriplegic. They flew him back to Vancouver. Everyone that, that knew the family was praying. Some of our people here, the Burstons, are praying for Mike. He's about to go in for surgery. The, the surgeon is saying, look, here's where, the, here's where the bone fragments are. I'm going to have to go in through your throat to get at them, to try to relieve some of the pressure. But, but more than likely, you're, gonna, you're not going to have any feeling in your arms and legs for the rest of your life. That's what this injury means. People are praying for him. People are in, in the waiting room praying that there would be healing, praying for whatever God might do. And the surgeon says, we're going to do one more x-ray. He said, x-rays before we go in and, and start to cut you open. And as they do the second set of x-rays, same angles, the doctor comes out and says, are you a religious man? Mike says, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. He said, well, someone's looking out for you. He said, he didn't know how to explain it. All the bone fragments had, had been pulled out of where they were pushing onto his spinal column. I mean, how, how does that happen? It was clearly from their own doctor's words, something that was unexplained, a supernatural, miraculous answer from God. Praise God. I mean, that's something that we as a people need to say, yes, Lord, you do heal. Yes, Lord, you do speak into people's lives in amazing transformative ways. And here in our text, we have the most miraculous of miracles. Jesus himself raised from the dead. So what does it tell us that with with all of that right there, ready to show these disciples Jesus, what does he do first? He still points to the word of God. Doesn't that tell us that, that here we find the, with greatest clarity and greatest consistency, everything that God has for us. Not that we shouldn't pursue experiences with God, not that we shouldn't pray for them. We have a supernatural God who does all of those things. But if we really want hope, if we really want the certainty of God's plan for us and his love for us, we have the word of God. And so the question for us then, as a people, for those who, 
who know God's word, is that where we're looking? Is that our source of hope and encouragement? When, when we are feeling let down, when we are feeling depressed, when we look to the future and we, we don't see any hope, where do we turn in our desperation? And when there are people in our lives who are likewise feeling just, just broken, not because of small things, because of real life disappointments that are threatening to, to pull them down into a spiral of despair, there are lots of ways we need to care for each other. But do we have the conviction that it's in the word of God that we will be most supremely helped and that God's word isn't just a book, it's not just information, that it's transformation. And you see the beauty of what Jesus says. He opens the word to them and he shows how everything from Moses and and the prophets, the same thing, interestingly, that Father Abraham says about those five brothers. Look, they have Moses and the prophets, right? They have everything they need for hope. And Jesus says the same thing, but this time he says, look, it's all about me. The Old Testament is intricately connected to the New Testament because the Old Testament anticipates the coming of Jesus. And the New Testament reveals, here's the one we've been waiting for. And in all of that, we see the the hope of God. And so whether you're you're here and just kind of curious about, you know, what is this thing, Christianity? What does it really mean to follow Jesus? My hope is that you will grab a Bible on your way out, that you will spend some time in your word to talk to someone, go to the connect desk and say, if I'm going to start, where where should I start reading? Uh, Surprisingly, you probably don't need to start at the very beginning. It'd be good to start in the New Testament and read, you know, about the life of Jesus. And also, what a blessing of all the resources we have. There, there are times in history when we could not hold a Bible in our hands, where we would not be literate enough to read it, or there wouldn't be anything printed. But we have Bibles, we have study Bibles that are so helpful. The question isn't, do we have the Word? The question is, are we devoting ourselves to it? And are we seeking a right understanding of it? That is the hope that Jesus brings into the situation. But it's not the only hope. He then goes on to give himself. So we're going to look at the last part, uh, the last few verses, beginning in verse 28. So they're walking. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther. That's Jesus. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is now toward evening and the day is far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So here we see also that the risen Jesus brings new life. That there's, there's life that Jesus breathes into these disciples and all of the disciples because of his uh, life, because he himself is risen from the dead. So uh, by new life, uh, I mean two things really, that we see here a spiritual awakening in the lives of these two disciples and also uh, a spiritual living. And so here's uh, what I mean. You notice that in these uh, verses that there's something stirring in the hearts of Mary and Cleopas. I mean, they're talking to this guy, something about him, the things he's 
he's saying to them is captivating. So much so that uh, it, it says there uh, in verse 29, like he wants to go on, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. Like we, we want to talk to you more. And then of course, the big reveal, Jesus breaks the bread and they, they see it's him. And then he vanishes. I love how he does that. He kind of sees it and he's gone and they're left filled with this newfound hope and joy. But notice the language to explain what's going on. Uh, it's telling that one of the things that jumps out, it says, uh, and their eyes were opened as they see him, not just their eyes were always open, but uh, spiritually, mentally, they see Jesus for who he is. And secondly, it says, or they say, you know, didn't our hearts burn within us? Like when he was talking, wasn't there something that we felt about, about him that was special? This language is, is very clearly the language of spiritual awakening. Uh, we see in the Old Testament that there are prophecies about what, what needs to happen to humanity for God to bring hope. And one of the things very clearly it says is that we need new hearts. That our hearts in sin, uh, the, the metaphoric language is used, it's stony heart or hard heart, a darkened heart. But here we see that their, their hearts were warmed. That they were burn, burning within them. That's the language of, of spiritual renewal. That it says God is going to bring a new heart, a heart of flesh, to all who would believe. We also see language of, of eyes being opened. Uh, in the book of Acts, Paul talks about how, uh, or God says to Paul, I want you to go to the Gentiles. I want you to, to open their eyes to see the truth of who Jesus is. All of this tells us that for Mary and Cleopas, they had known Jesus before, but this was the moment where their faith became real, where, where, they, where they truly believed, not just that he was the Messiah who would bring some measure of, of kind of hope, you know, in terms of the political climate, the military climate, that he would rule. No, they, he was the Messiah who would bring healing to our hearts. And their eyes were open to see the truth. And this is the reality for everyone who comes to faith. That it is only by the, the power of the Spirit of God that anyone come, goes from a heart of, of darkness and flesh uh, in sin to a, a spiritual heart. One that recognizes who Jesus is. And if you're here this morning... And you're a believer, you can probably look back. And you can either identify a, a moment or a season where there was a, like a burning inside. Where, where your affections changed. It's like you changed from the inside out. You all of a sudden wanted to read this book that maybe for years you didn't really want to. All of a sudden you were kind of interested in coming on a Sunday morning and, and being around people who, who love the things of God. Your, your own affections were changed. How does that happen? Well, it happens through the power of the Spirit of God, that he changes you from the inside out, and it doesn't stop there. We see again that, that they are compelled to not just a spiritual awakening, but spiritual living. And so this we see in kind of the last part, where they, they realize, and then what do they do? They, they rose, uh, verse 33, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Now that was not very wise. It was dark by this point. Right? It was dangerous to travel the roads, but they, they couldn't sit still. Right? There's something that they realized, this epiphany, and they, they had to go and tell others about it. And so they went to Jerusalem to talk to all of the disciples. And sure enough, Jesus had appeared to some of them as well. And they got to tell their story. This is a pattern of those that have come to genuine faith in Jesus. That, that we don't just experience something on the inside, but that then we go and tell others about it. 
Why? Because we can't keep it to ourselves. Because it's genuinely something that has transformed us, brought hope. And we realize that there are other people around us that don't have that same hope. I mean, that's what Easter was all about. The opportunity to celebrate who Jesus is. And the opportunity, hopefully, to to tell others about him. That's the pattern of, of the Christian life. The spiritual living that comes out of the spiritual awakening by the power of God. Now, in, in closing, to all of this, I mean, wonder and amazement, and we're going to see in the weeks to come that this continues as people continue to see the risen Jesus and, and their faith is, man, it's all of a sudden for the first time we really understand what this is all about. But what I want us to see is that this was always going to happen. This was always God's plan. That Jesus is not just the, the Son of God, He is the Word itself. And so in, in closing, I want to read to you John uh, 1 where we see the connection between Jesus as the word and and the hope and and help that God is bringing into our lives. And so it'll be on the screen and just just think about what is being said about the word Jesus and and by extension, uh, the written word. So it says this, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The sermon title was The Essential Hope of the Word. We see here that Jesus has always been our essential hope. That he is the Word of God, and that what we hold in our hands is, is the revelation of who he is. And that there is no darkness in our life that his light cannot shine into. I mean, for the disciples, you have to, you have to put yourself in their, their place. Like for us, of course Jesus was going to suffer. Of course he was going to die on the cross. We, we've heard that story all together since the first time we've heard about Jesus. But for them, they thought that all hope was lost. They were in such a state of, of despair. And the truth of the matter is that all of humanity is in that level of despair. Everywhere around us, there are those that have hoped in things of this world. They had had a certain idea about what was going to bring happiness and joy, and things are falling apart. And God's answer has always been the same. That light shines in the darkness. It first shines in the darkness of our sin in our heart, and then it works itself out into the rest of our life, to the point that, that we are meant to shine as lights into the darkness of the world. And that through that, the hope of God will be communicated, will be, will be sh- shared with everyone, with everyone who is desperate, everyone who's been disappointed. What a beautiful thing for Jesus to do on this afternoon, this Easter afternoon. What a beautiful thing for us for those of us who know Jesus, to be reminded of the importance of God's word. And for all of us, hopefully those here who are, as I said, kind of wondering about this, for you to see what God has for you in this book. Because we get to know Jesus. And Jesus is our hope. So we're going to pray and then respond to the hope of Christ.